Hello and welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University's research and how it benefits people and communities both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and I am delighted to be joined by Dr Katie Proctor, a lecturer in criminology and policing at the university to talk about her research into stalking. Katie, thank you very much for joining me on the show. Thank you very much for having me. I suppose the best place to start is with quite a big question. How do we define stalking? That is a big question because it's very difficult to define stalking. At the moment, we have hundreds and hundreds of different definitions, which is something that I was looking at with my research and Mm -hmm. looking at what people were telling me. So essentially, there's kind of two main criteria that most, most definitions will have, and that's repeated incidents that cause some kind of fear or alarm in the person. But that can vary quite a bit in terms of some people will say, well, it's got to be a certain number of incidents within the last 10 days or the mm-hmm. last year or something like that. Um, and some people, are when they're measuring it, especially for sort of the, the crime and justice surveys and things, they might say, well, have you experienced any of these things in the last year? So if you experience it a day before that year, is up, right. if that makes sense, right, okay. um, then you don't fall in that criteria and you wouldn't be measured sort of thing. So... So everyone's using in research, in laws and um, surveys for for other things, then everyone's defining it differently. So there's no consistent kind of definition. Yeah. When I was reading up on it, you could sort of compare it to things like harassment, antisocial behaviour, yeah. threatening and abusive behaviour. How did it differ from those things? Well, we, when we look at the laws that are in Scotland there's very little that actually distinguishes between all of those different things. So we have the new domestic abuse law, which is about repeated incidents, a course of conduct, but it's only um, between partners or ex-partners. Stalking is repeated incidents that cause fear or alarm, two or more incidents, but it could be for anybody. Then we have antisocial behaviour and the lines get sort of blurred, and a lot of it depends on, or rather whether or not it progresses through the criminal justice system or what people categorise it as, is dependent on their understanding or their knowledge. So a police officer that hasn't dealt with stalking before might turn up to um, to a reported incident and they might put it down as antisocial behaviour because it's caused some kind mm-hmm. of alarm. And you do get a lot of antisocial behaviour being perpetrated during the course of, of stalking as well. So it's a real mixture of different types yeah. of behaviours. It sounds quite flawed. Do we need a new definition for stalking? I think we do need a new definition. I think at the moment the law the law is pretty good in that it's got a sort of catch-all thing. So if the criminal justice system, the people that are running that criminal justice system and looking at that case recognise the case of stalking, then the law is there to back it up. Mm. But I think we really, especially in academic literature, because all we don't have a consistent picture of mm-hmm. prevalence and all of those kind of things and who's experiencing what because everyone's using different measurements and differences. So I think from my research, um, I found that a common theme was not necessarily the repeated incidents, although it's definitely a course of conduct, but once you start adding numbers to things, then people fall through the cracks or it doesn't get recognised. So I wanted to look and see at what actually made stalking stalking as opposed to domestic abuse or antisocial behaviour kind of thing and what it came down to for me when I looked it's about power and control and it's about surveillance using surveillance and communicating that surveillance to people in a way that leaves them feeling how do they know that or I didn't know that person saw me at that time so it could be something Mm -hmm. like 
you get a text message from somebody saying, oh, you looked fantastic today um, in your green coat. And that person could be like, I didn't know that person saw me. So that's quite frightening. How does he know that bit of information? What are some of the other forms that stalking can take? In terms of the surveillance behaviours or the other types of behaviours? The other types of behaviours. Um, well, when I've spoken to people, there's been so much stuff and I think it's been it's often bespoke to that person and also to the relationship that they've had because I think each incident that happens is a communication, it's a message from the stalker to their target. So for everybody it's completely different. Again, that makes it difficult to measure. But things like had people, well, some really disgusting things happening like people, a neighbour, throwing bags of faeces into a garden. Mm. I've had people talking about um, just making making phone calls to service providers and ordering like packages of stuff like to Sky TV or something and and then Sky TV will phone up the target and say oh I'm just getting in touch and they're like I haven't ordered this and they have to go through the whole rigmarole so there's this constant mm-hmm. intrusion on somebody's life and they have to deal with it and explain what's going on so deliberately disruptive towards them yeah really sort of intimate kind of intrusions into life so you can't just sit down in your living room also some really mundane and but really quite threatening things as well so i'd spoken to a woman who was um she had a quite a serious visual disability or visual impairment sorry and she said that she would have to take her guide dog out to put washing up uh, on the line but the person that was stalking her was her neighbour and he would come out into the garden, he would watch to see when she was going out, he would come out and then he would grab onto her guide dog and wouldn't let the guide dog back next to her. So she, he knew that she could not go back in the house without her guide dog. So it doesn't sound like much and he could say... No, imagine if that's a big well, thing, if you are visually impaired. Exactly, that's but if she was to call the police and all he needs to say is, well... I was just petting her dog if she can't control it, it's not my problem. So there's no way you can prove that that is a malicious event really, or it's very difficult to. Um, and that's where the course of conduct thing mm-hmm. comes in, is really important because it's, it can be a lot of behaviours like that that don't look criminal, that aren't essentially mm-hmm. criminal, but are extremely threatening to somebody in those particular circumstances. Why do people stalk? I know you mentioned power and control earlier, is that the main crux as to why people do it? I think so, yeah. I think it is all about exerting your power and control. It's like domestic abuse, it's like bullying, sexual violence, all of those things. It's somebody's expression of power and control over somebody else. And it can have such a huge impact and control people. Um, Because when somebody's going through that, then they have to um, start sort of thinking about, well, hold on a second, that might be risky if I do that that might be risky, I'll have to do this instead. So every single decision that they make becomes a risk assessment. So I spoke to people who were, for instance, they would never wear night dresses to bed anymore. They would only wear tracksuits or pyjamas because then they knew that they could run at any point in time. Somebody else had said that she, when it started and it was at its sort of height of, of being really frightening for her, she said she couldn't wash because she didn't want to go into the bathroom and shut the door because if you opened it and there was somebody standing there, she wouldn't be able to monitor everything that was going around. Um, And then probably the most literal kind of expression of that sort of shrinking world and being under somebody's control was somebody that would um, put all of the stuff that she needed for the night in a room at the back of the house 
turn off all the lights elsewhere and just stay in that room so she would have her, you know, a kettle, her sleeping bag, whatever it was. And that way she felt if the stalker broke in, she would have an extra 30 seconds because he wouldn't be able to locate where she was in the house because the lights weren't on. So other people are living in darkness for the same reasons. Um, they don't put any music or TV on because they need to be able to hear every sound. That's really scary. It is unbelievably scary. And that is all being controlled. Somebody's just done some incidents that have frightened you and it leaves you with no control. So you have to start doing those things just to kind of make yourself feel a bit safer. But you don't know if, when and what is going to happen. What's the end point of stalking? Well, that's another interesting question. For the target, I don't. There isn't really an endpoint. I spoke to a lot of people who said that I would ask them in their interviews, like, can you see a point where you will feel like the stalk is no longer around or you will feel safe? And a lot of people said, well, no, the only time I'm going to feel safe is when one of us is dead, because for the person, the whole fear and alarm and that having that power and control over somebody means that they're living in this sort of constant threat of unknown. They don't know what's going to happen yet. So I had one woman who said that she hadn't heard from her stalker in any way for 30 years, but she was still going round every single room in her house at night to check that there was no one there when she was going to, to bed. So there's no definition in the world that would say, yes, she's a victim of stalking, but for her it's not ended. It sounds like it kind of a real lasting impact mm, from mm-hmm. victims from stalking. What were some of the things that you learned, some of the consequences from the victims? Well, very much this sort of shrinking world. You know, people withdrew from all sorts of things because they didn't know where their stalker was going to turn up. They would turn up at um, their kids' school and things like that. Some people's friends tried to distance themselves because they were worried that the stalker would turn up and either target them or or um, cause some kind of scene. So some people, you know, they had their best friends phoning them up and saying, I don't want you to come to my wedding because he might turn up or she might turn up. And so getting isolated. So I think the biggest thing is about isolation. And for people that were, uh, well, had got to a really extreme end, they were having suicidal feelings um, because they felt that that was the only way that they could deal with what was happening. It sounds like mental torture. That's exactly what it is, because majority of people, well, a lot of people, probably the majority of people, won't even see their stalker during the stalking. So it is purely psychological and emotional. There's obviously, there is a risk and a physical risk, and we know that um, there are some stalkers that will take that to uh, murdering somebody. Um, and people in domestic abuse situations who are being stalked either during their relationship or after it are most at risk of suffering severe violence. So we can never completely discount that, but if we focus just on that physical aspect and the violence, then we miss out a huge number Mm -hmm. of people that are going through that emotional trauma that um, can't get support or help because of it. Sticking with endpoints, Katie, can you tell me about predatory stalking? There is some researchers that would argue that there is a type of stalking called predatory stalking and basically what they or how they describe that is somebody that is using stalking behaviours to gather information they're using surveillance and things like that to monitor their target but the target doesn't know that that is happening they don't know they're being stalked at that point or they don't know that they're being watched and the perpetrator uses that information 
to then facilitate another crime. So it could be a murder, something really serious, um, a rape, something like that, or, or a kidnap, maybe kidnapping somebody. And you probably see that a lot of um, serial killers will, might use that sort of behaviour. But for me, all of the people that I was talking to knew that they were being stalked and the stalker had gone out of their way to communicate that to them. So that's what I mean when we're talking about surveillance and mm -hmm. communicating yeah. that surveillance. And because of that, I don't think predatory stalking is true stalking. I think that's right, just okay. a that's a predator that is preparing the best time and place to rape, murder, whatever they want to do in a way that they're not going to get caught. Because stalking can go on for such a long time and it's this constant communication. If you want to have power and control over somebody through stalking, they have to know that they are being stalked. And so if we're looking at it through that framework of power and control, then it, you cannot reconcile predatory mm -hmm, stalking yeah. as a true type of stalking because there is that end point to what's happening. But with stalking, it's ongoing. Do stalkers fit a profile? Lots of people argue yes. There's lots and lots of different typologies and things like that out there. But you have to be really careful about which one you're looking at. They're, I think they're fit for the purpose in which they were designed. So there's several out there that have been designed or typologies put together by clinical psychologists. But they're based on clinical samples of stalkers who have done something that's so extreme that A, they've been caught, B, they've been referred on to a clinical psychology unit. Um, so, so there's very specific things going on there, I think. So for me, for the layperson, because I don't think it's, it's not safe to kind of label a stalker, I don't think, as a particular kind of stalker. So for instance, there's things out there saying revenge stalker. But we know in sexual violence, where there's different types of rapists, especially stranger rapists, and if you decide that they're this type and you react in one way, mm -hmm. that actually might aggravate the situation and make it worse. So I think the typology should only be used or used within the situation that they were that they were designed for. So. When I was reading your research, Katie, I read about delusional and non-delusional stalking. Can you tell me the difference between the two? There's been a theory put forward that um, that there's two types of stalkers, that either they're delusional or they're non-delusional. And um, I suppose the majority of stalkers that we hear about in the press are people like celebrities who are being stalked by somebody who thinks they're in a relationship with them or they're getting some kind of message that they have to, you know, do something to somebody. So I would argue that and I suppose the, the person that put forward this theory would argue that that was a, a causal factor. They don't know what they're doing um, because they have a, such a severe mental health issue that they're delusional and that's why they're doing the stalking. Whereas if you talk about sort of the majority of people that are being stalked, and we know that the majority of people that are stalked is within the context of a, an abusive relationship, so those people aren't delusional. They know exactly what they're doing. Now, some people argue, some researchers argue that everybody that stalks or the majority of people that become stalkers have got a personality disorder. But that doesn't stop them from knowing right from wrong. It's not what I would say a causal factor. They know exactly what they're doing. And when you are looking at it within a framework of power and control, what they're doing is an extended sort of 
campaign. So they have to think very carefully about how they're going to do that, how they're going to get that message across that's going to be understood by the target, but that they're not going to get caught and criminalised for doing it. So, and if they, some people I spoke to had been stalked for, you know, nine years, 13 years, and they had, uh, they had nobody that they could get to help them. So that's somebody that very much knows what they're doing and they're not delusional, they're in complete control and they're doing it in a way that they can't get caught so they know right from wrong. Um, and I think that's, that is a, a very convenient and way of, a convenient way of distinguishing between um, stalkers as opposed to using the typologies that we talked about already, um, unless you're in that forensic uh, clinical sort of setting. Is it mostly men who stalk women? Yes. That's the vast, the vast majority of cases are male stalkers um, and female victims. And the vast majority of those are either ex or current partners. So there's a lot of sort of in, um, correlation with domestic abuse and things. But is there, sorry, is there any explanation as to why it's gendered like that? I think it goes to the same sorts of reasons as other gender-based violence, like sexual violence and domestic abuse. It's part of gender equality and that big inequality rather and that bigger picture of what's going on in the dynamics and um, because we see that a lot of behaviors as well are normalized in society so don't know if you remember milk tray adverts and kind of um, aging yeah. myself when I say those <laughs> so there were adverts about this um, handsome man sort of battling against the odds to get a box of chocolates to the woman that he loved supposedly and would leave that there with an enormous card and she was meant to swoon and all the rest yeah. of it but and those was considered you know the height of romance at one point but in actual fact what that's saying is i i will swim through shark infested waters to get to you you can go nowhere without me finding you and you won't know when or where and I'm, I can just get in and get into your bedroom and, and leave you a box of poison chocolates maybe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so those behaviours are very much normalised and so it makes it very difficult for people to to distinguish between that and our culture doesn't really help with that at all. And in your research you spoke to 128 women who had experienced stalking you kind of touched on this uh, over the course of this podcast Katie but were their experiences broadly similar or did they say anything that surprised you? Just a point of clarification, it was 114 women um, in the survey and 14 men I had. Right, beg and your I pardon. I spoke to 32 people um, and 28 of those were women, so I don't know if you need that level of accuracy. That'll but... teach me for them, <laughs> for writing my notes properly. <laughs> um, so in the interviews, the, the themes that I noticed the most were this surveillance and the communication of surveillance. Um, and that being expressed as some kind of power and control. So those were the main themes and that's that's what everybody, so I was speaking to people that were stalked by neighbours, stalked by female neighbours, friends, acquaintances, ex-partners, work colleagues, all of that, um, and those were common to all of them. The things that I found shocking, I suppose, was, was the severe impact on people and how much they felt they had to change their lives to keep themselves safe. And then also the response that they got from friends and family, even if they were getting a sympathetic response from, from all those people or from the police, they still didn't seem to be able to get the help that they needed or the intervention or stop the stalker. And that I found really, really frustrating because I think I had, it shocked me to see how many third parties could be involved in a stalking um, incident and still nobody could help with anything. Can you expand on that? 
Yeah, so I suppose I, I came up with some kind of a classification of the third parties because as I was going through the interviews, I hadn't asked any specific questions. I'd literally just gone in and said, can you tell me what's been happening? Because the majority of research that's been done has been questionnaires, so people only have a certain number of answers mm -hmm. they can give. So you don't know if you're getting their actual experience. And throughout all of the interviews, everybody would talk about, oh, and then this person, um, I told this person, or the perpetrator asked this person to get in touch with me. Everybody had loads and loads of third parties involved. And I sort of narrowed those down to be people that were significant others, so friends, family, anyone that was important to them, uh, to the victim or the target, uh, to the, sorry, the target or the perpetrator people, bystanders that might just see something happening and witnesses, service providers, so um, the courts in particular in during cases where um, somebody is, it's they're being stalked by an ex-partner and they have children in common. So I spoke to a couple of people who had got restraining orders out, they had actually got a conviction against their partner for stalking, and yet that partner was then able to go to the civil courts and say, well, I want my parental rights. I'm fit to be a father, despite all of this violence that they've perpetrated already. And that is taken seriously by the civil courts. So when that happens, the the perpetrator can dictate everything. So he knows exactly where his target is going mm -hmm. to be. If he doesn't turn up, the date gets postponed. If she Just doesn't turn it. up, yeah. If she doesn't turn up then she's got social work on her back because she's not a fit parent because she's not turning up mm -hmm. to this. So um, that can be a really threatening environment for somebody because they are at risk of losing their children. And also when you're the target and you don't get a say over the dates or they're cancelled at the last minute, you're taking work time off work possibly, mm -hmm. you need childcare. So it's this massive infringement and, and sort of making difficult situation and then you have to see your perpetrator who you may well be terrified of. It sounds like a lot of these third party connections they are involved unwittingly in providing the, they can the perpetrator with information. Yeah they can be, it can be completely unwittingly, it can be that they know what they're doing um, as well. I had instances of people who were, were threatened because the, the perpetrator was you know, a well known gangster or had been violent and people knew about it mm. so he would just say give me the phone number and this will happen. Or I spoke to people who were actively, incidents were perpetrated by a friend of the perpetrator that were violent towards the target. So they knew what they were doing and they were quite happy to take part in that and be physically violent if necessary. So it's, you know, there's a huge continuum of, of people that are, that are involved. Mm. The majority are bystanders, I guess. You mentioned about some of the victims perhaps not getting the correct levels of sympathy from their friends, colleagues about stalking. Is it something the police take seriously? I know you mentioned earlier about they might take a, a physical incident seriously. Essentially, yes. On paper, yes. But it can be very difficult for them to recognise something as stalking. So, if they get called out by somebody and you know, it's it's an incident like I've been sent a text message. You'll get two different police officers turning up to each different reported event. So they might not necessarily see the course of conduct depending on, you know, what else has been reported and what they've been able to see at that point. So if they just treat it as a one-off incident, then they might say, well, that's not a crime and why on earth would you be frightened of that? So on an individual basis, it can be really problematic. The other thing in the law is that you have to prove and show that you were frightened. 
Now, if you can imagine, that's a really difficult thing yeah. to, to approve. And especially when somebody has sent you some flowers. Why are you frightened by that? So that's, again, where this course of conduct becomes really important, because if you can establish that, then you can say, well, I'm frightened because of all of these other things that have happened, and that's just yet another reminder behaviour mm -hmm. that the stalker has engaged in. Once someone's been convicted for stalking, they've been given like a custodial sentence, community service, a fine, a restraining order placed upon them, something along those lines. What's the likelihood of them continuing to stalk after that? I think there's a very high likelihood that they will continue or try to continue. Um, and that's that's fairly anecdotal, but coming from my experience of working with women who have been in refuge and sort of seen what they're going through, you know, they may well want to take out or could take out a restraining order, but the the restraining order will come with specific sanctions on that person and how they can do you know whether or not they can contact them by phone and, and things like that so there'll always be other ways that they can get around that or they can use the third parties but I did speak to one person who's a stalker she managed to get a conviction he was put in custody for six months he was convicted and in prison for six months which is really rare so that speaks to the severity of what he was doing and that it was recognized by the entire criminal justice system. So custodial sentences in these instances are rare? Yes, uh -huh, relatively speaking. But he just started writing letters to her, um, saying, I can't wait until I see you again. That's very scary. Very scary. And what I found more scary almost was the fact that she put a complaint into the prison and they said, now this was quite a long time ago, so I don't want to tar like all prisons' um, sort of reputations, but they said, well, we can't do anything about that. We can't watch him 24 hours a day, blah, blah, blah. So she put in more complaints and she got the support from the police. I think he'd sent her about five to eight letters, which was terrifying her. And eventually they said, okay, well, we'll say that he is not allowed to post letters or send letters to this address. Great. But all that meant was he just handed that letter to his cellmate who then posted it for him. So there's ways round all of these sanctions and they will test every single boundary that they possibly can. Now your research said that we require specialist task force and courts to deal with stalking. How plausible do you think it is to bring those things into action? It can be done. We have domestic abuse courts with specially trained staff. We have domestic abuse liaison officers. So, and those have been really successful and are very supportive and help people with advocacy all the way through the criminal justice system. So it is possible, as I said, but obviously establishing something like that takes a long time, it takes a lot of funds, and we need to show a case very definitively that it's needed. And at the moment, I don't think we recognise the true prevalence of stalking. We are getting more and more convictions each year and certainly loads more reports and things, but we don't know what's getting convicted, what kinds of cases, is there that physical element, um, and that, that kind of information. So at the moment, the information isn't out there on paper to say we definitely need this. Ideally, we can build up to that, but it would, even if you know it was to be agreed tomorrow, it would take a very long time to come through. Now, is your research, Katie, has it fed into GCU's work into gender-based violence at all? Yes, it has. Um, so we have our gender-based violence sort of strategy group, and that involved... We have some first responders for um, staff and students to go to who can 
if, if they've experienced any kind of gender-based violence and, and need some uh, support or help to find the right people to go to. Um, and so my research has fed into the training around that um, and into sort of the gender-based violence policy and things like that. So uh, it has been a lot of, of use already within mm-hmm. the university. What about other organisations? Yeah, um, I've made a point because my background has been working in um, the voluntary sector for people like Women's Aid and Rape Crisis. And they're the ones that can put the sort of information into practice straight away with the people that they work with. So I've made a point of going to do, deliver a lot of training and I've, I've reached uh, hundreds of people across Scotland Brilliant. working for um, the voluntary sector, women's aid groups, police, social work, and training them on what stalking is and how people can be supported. Do we have any data about stalking in minority communities? No, no we don't. Um, and that's something I'd really, really like to look into. I think it'd be really interesting. The 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 sample that I had um, was very kind of bland in terms of diversity, unfortunately, because I had wanted to, to look at that to see if there was any differences in behaviours and things um, or consequences. But at the moment, uh, really, it's the majority of research that's out there. It's on Western white people, mm-hmm. And a lot of that is college studies as well. So. And there's not a lot of research in Scotland about stalking no, as it is? No, there was something in 2002. And then we have the Scottish Crime and Justice Survey, which happens every couple of years. And that's for government statistics. But um, I think their questions on that are very limited. So it doesn't really give us a true picture of what's going on. Away from your academic research, you're a member of the Lifelines charity. And this is a charity that sets up correspondence between members of the public and prisoners on death row in the United States. Can you you tell me about this, please? Yeah, so um, I've been a member of Lifelines probably for about five years now. Okay. And I have two pen friends, one who is in Texas death row and another one that's on Arizona death row. Did you pick them to correspond with? No, no. I joined Lifelines... The, the charity and said I would like to have a pen friend and then they have a waiting list of people okay. on death row who are waiting for that. I suppose the big question is why did you choose to join Lifelines? Um, yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm a criminologist and so I've got an interest in prisons and punishments and things like that, but I'm also um, a human rights activist, I guess, and I, it's something I'd always thought about joining because I was always a member of Amnesty International when I was younger right. and it was advertised in there. Um, and for various reasons, I didn't do that straight away. But basically, I believe, as does Lifelines, that the death penalty is unjust mm-hmm. um, and that nobody, no matter what they've done, nobody should be put on death row because it is such a horrific experience for lots and lots of different reasons. Can you go into some of those reasons? Yeah, so I suppose, I'm just trying to think where to start with all of that because it, it is just so horrible. Conditions in different different prisons and different states vary, but essentially I would imagine the majority of people that are on death row, they're living in a cell, a very small cell that has Um, their toilet has a sink has their bed and that is their living space so when I first started writing to my first pen pal he told me that he would have all of his meals delivered to him in a bag that he would eat in his cell and that's pushed through so pushed through a sort of letterbox type thing Mm -hmm. 
if he wanted to, or if he was allowed to leave his cell to go for some kind of recreation or a shower or something like that, he would have to be shackled, ha hands and legs, and escorted to wherever it was he was going. He wasn't allowed contact visits with friends and family, so he was put on death row when he was about 18 and is now mid-40s oh, and has been living like that for 30-odd years. So people are subjected to what we would consider torture in any other situation. Um, they're denied sort of basic, basic rights, really. One one way, perhaps looking at it, and mm -hmm. I'm just putting my devil's advocate hat yeah. on there. If, if you like break quote unquote a social contract by committing a pretty horrendous crime, then that's the punishment for doing something like that. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely, I would never say that somebody that's committed an atrocious crime should not be punished. Absolutely, they deserve punishment, and the punishment is there for a reason. And there's various criminological sort of theories about what punishment is and why we should have it, and people say well it's a deterrent it it prevents crime because it's a deterrent but we know death row isn't a deterrent mm -hmm. at all also it doesn't offer any kind of rehabilitation so if somebody's on death row you're never going especially if they are dangerous you're never going to be able to let them go because there's no rehabilitation they're just left in a cell so the punishment is very much for punishment's sake and they can be on death row for decades and decades and decades they can be given an execution date and their lawyers will work to try and get rid of that execution date or get a stay of execution. And they may, 24 hours or an hour before that they're due to go to whatever it is, they get their stay of execution. So they have to, and they may have to do that. That sounds times. horrendous. Absolutely horrendous. So they're living with that constant threat of death penalty. When am I going to be killed, basically? They see people that they've made friends with in the prison system being taken off and, and killed. So it's it's just horrific. I can't imagine anything worse. And then you get things like, you know, these the people that I'm speaking to or writing to, they're living in, in states that are really hot and they don't have any air conditioning mm. or anything. So they're in these small cells. They're not allowed to have many showers or there's specific times they can have showers. They don't have any fans, they don't have a proper window, so they're just sitting in a sweat box, essentially. So it's, it's, it's just horrific, I think, and I don't think anybody really should be put through that. It is a form of torture, I think, you know, their liberty's been taken away, maybe they do deserve to be in, in prison for life. You know, that's another conversation to have, whether mm -hmm. or not life should mean life, but to live with that threat of death. And because they're on death row or because of the crimes they've committed, a lot of the time they have absolutely nobody. So their family disown them, their friends disown them. And understandably, you know, I'm not saying that they're bad people for doing that, but the person on death row finds themselves in complete isolation in a, a tiny cell. And then also they have to buy a lot of stuff for themselves. So the food's pretty bad. Um, it's meant to be very limited and, and just gross basically um, so they might want to buy extra food but they're not allowed to work uh, depending on the, the, the prison that they're in so they can't get any money so how are they meant to buy these things to, to make their life just that little bit more bearable so what sort of stuff do you write about? 
all sorts of stuff really just um just trying to think just everyday things so what i've been up to so um i was at a conference last week so the next time i write i'll probably tell them that i was at a conference um i might tell them that i've done this interview but just you know just everyday stuff about oh, one of my pen friends he really loves dogs so and i really love dogs so we talk a lot about dogs <laughs> i've sent him the odd picture about my dog and he tells me stories about when he was a kid and so yeah it's just very everyday stuff do you know why they're on death row? I I do know why my pen friends are on death row. When you join, you are recommended to not um, find that out because you can just look it up on the prison website. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a list of their convictions. And for obvious reasons, the, the charity says, be very wary of doing that because obviously it can change your perception. So the first pen friend that I had, I deliberately didn't look for well over a year, I think it was, um, because I didn't want to to ruin or potentially ruin or cloud that. What changed? Why did you look up his conviction? Um, nosiness, <laughs> really. Um, I, I'd got to know him really well, or as well as you can mm-hmm. in that sort of circumstance, um, and I felt confident that I could separate the person that I knew from the crime that was committed 35 years ago. Um, so I felt that it was a, I could deal with that. And yeah, I suppose I just kind of wanted to understand why he was where he was, um, because you get to know this mm-hmm. person as an individual. Well, how did it feel then when you discovered what he'd done? Um, it's, it's really difficult to, to, to answer because I knew that it was going to be something really bad. If you're on death row, you've at least killed somebody, and there's probably aggravating factors to that as well. So I prepared myself for that, and I don't know. I think you feel. I can't believe. I just I can't I can't see him doing that. Not that I mm-hmm. you know doubting the conviction or anything like that, but it's just it's quite surreal. I think. I found it surreal because I couldn't marry the two together. It was shocking, obviously. Yeah, I, I can't answer that question, actually. It's really... Did you tell your, your pen friend that you'd no, made up about them? No, I didn't. And that wasn't a conscious decision. That was because when you're writing, there's a risk, obviously, that that the authorities will read that mm-hmm. letter. Yeah, because, of course, there's guidelines as to what you can yeah, you can't put uh-huh. in your letters. So we can't talk about the case I don't want to ask them about the case if they want to tell me about their case then I'm I'm fine with that but there's a risk that that could incriminate them or it could speed up their execution date or something like that so generally haven't you, we wouldn't talk about that at all so and they've never mentioned it to me I've never mentioned it to them so what do you think you've learned about yourself from writing to these people gosh that's a really difficult question I don't know. I think I I spent I literally spent decades thinking about whether or not I could do this and I didn't want to take it on when I was much younger. So I'd started thinking about doing it when I was 18. And you know, it's a commitment because these people have nobody else potentially. Mm-hmm. So if you stop writing to them that can be yeah. devastating. So I wanted to make sure that I could do it and that if I did know what they'd done that I could stay the course sort of thing. And I've realised that I can do that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's probably not a very profound answer. 
I think it's not necessarily taught me much about myself because I thought for such a long time about the consequences of doing this and how I would feel about it. But it really has shown to me how somebody that has committed an atrocious crime and been convicted of it, that that is not the only thing that they're about. You know, they are an individual person, they have friends and family and a life and I don't think they should be defined by that mm. thing that they've been convicted of solely. Mm-hmm. Well, from, from my own experience in the, in the, in the build-up to recording this, Katie, you gave me a loan of the Wing of Friendship, that's Lifeline's quarterly newsletter. Mm-hmm. And reading through it, I found it quite upsetting because I, I was very conflicted reading it. There's some very poignant pieces of writing in there and some, some very nice artwork, but it's been made by people who have done some horrendous crimes. And on top of that is people who have subsequently been executed. Mm-hmm. Is that something you feel as well? Do you feel a conflict reading their stuff? Yeah, if I think... Well, I, I don't feel conflict about how I feel about death row. No matter... I still have always firmly believed that death row is wrong and unjust and a breach of human rights. And so I suppose I've come from this from the side of compa- compassion for individuals. And it is, it's really, really sad, distressing to kind of see what people are going through. But I think I've I've resolved that sort of conflict by not just rushing into it. I've thought hard about it and thought about, you know, I, I read a lot and I teach about the criminal justice system as well. So I know that we have, you're more likely to be put on death row if you've murdered a white person than if you've murdered a black person. So there's there's so many sort of nuances to the entire criminal justice system not just death row that makes it unjust in a lot of ways so lots of people on on in the prison system that are from deprivation and you know they've been they've they've their lives have led to this crime that yes they've had agency over but sometimes you think well if i'd had a life like that can i guarantee that i wouldn't have ended up in prison now, death row is an extreme version of that, mm-hmm. um, but I feel I don't feel conflicted in that I see the, the person and the people on death row as individuals. I can completely understand why family members of their victims or you know would want to see them dead. Mm-hmm. You know, I have no idea what it must feel like to to lose somebody like that uh, under those circumstances. Um, so I can, I'm not saying that they're being irrational or overreacting, absolutely not. And as I said, people need to be punished. But I can take that step back and I can take the time to get to know somebody and realise that actually they did do this horrific thing, but they've also got this whole other side to them. Would you ever consider travelling to the United States to meet them? Yes, I think I would. That's something that I have thought about. And I, my first pen friend, we seem to have, we've, I've got a completely different relationship with both of them. So the first pen friend, absolutely, I would go in and see him. The second one, I just can't ever see that happening. For, you know, I can't see him wanting to meet me and vice versa. We just okay. have a completely different relationship. So, yeah, but yeah, <laughs> the short answer is yes. <laughs> 
Katie, thank you very much for talking to me today. That was absolutely fantastic. We really learned a lot from speaking to you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to the show and I hope you'll join us again soon where we'll be talking to another researcher from Glasgow Caledonian University. Until then, I've been Craig Telfer and this has been The Common Good Podcast.